we are going to read the Bible passage for today. So if you reach down and grab the black book out from the chair in front of you and turn to Leviticus chapter 9 on page 106. Now we're going to read the whole chapter. And there's some gory bits and a bit of repetition, but let's not underestimate God's ability to speak to us through this, just like Cezanne said. All right. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, take a bull calf for your sin offering and a ram for your burnt offering, both without defect, and present them before the Lord. Then say to the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, both a year old and without defect, for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, together with a grain offering mixed with olive oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. They took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came to the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. His sons brought the blood to him and he dipped his finger into the blood and put it on the horns of the altar. The rest of the blood he poured out at the base of the altar. On the altar he burned the fat, the kidneys, and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned up outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. His sons handed him the blood, and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. They handed him the burnt offering piece by piece, including the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the internal organs and the legs and burned them on top of the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin and slaughtered it and offered it for a sin offering, as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and he offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as the fellowship offering for the people. His sons handed him the blood and he splashed it against the sides of the altar. But the fat portions of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the layer of fat, the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, these they laid on the breasts and then Aaron burned the fat on the altar. Aaron waved the breasts and the right thigh before the Lord as a wave offering, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. And having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Well, hello, everyone. 
<laughs> Good to be with you, despite that miserable response. Uh, could you open your Bibles to Leviticus, keep them open, Leviticus chapter 9, page 106. Can assure you that no chickens were harmed in the production of today's message. We're going to pray, we're going to get straight underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scriptures. They are breathed out by you and remain useful for us, for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. So we want to be taught, corrected, rebuked and trained this very morning that we might increasingly reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today we are talking about priests, and priests don't have a good name at the moment, do they? Uh, the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Offences has been eye-opening and eye-watering, to say the least. And though it emerged that there was widespread abuse in all sorts of institutions, government institutions, community groups like the Scouts, that it occurred at all in churches by those who are meant to represent the love and the care of God, it just feels more horrific, doesn't it? That it occurred in such high numbers in the churches, all the more horrific. And there's a part of me that would like to say, look, it was mainly the Catholics, and I guess they're more prone to that sort of thing because their priests you know, swear to be celibate, but then it happened in Anglican denominations, in places like the Hunter region, and there's a part of me that would like to say, yeah, but up there, they're, they're basically Catholic anyway, the way they practice church. But it happened here as well, in Sydney, in evangelical, Bible-based, Jesus-loving churches as well. And you just can't avoid that reality. And that means that I'm ashamed of the way that people who have claimed to be representatives of Jesus have hurt children, our most vulnerable. And I expect that I will be making apologies for their behavior for the rest of my ministry career. I just, that's my expectation. I'm so deeply sorry for the pain they have caused victims and their whole families. And it's for good reason that priests have a bad name in our society at the moment. Bearing that in mind though, today we are looking at the topic of priests, but it's from the book of Leviticus. And we've got to work hard to not let, or not tar the priests way back then with the behaviour of priests in more recent times and to let the book of Leviticus speak for itself. And I think we'll discover that priests back then, they had issues of their own and they didn't need any extra help in falling under judgment. Anyway, that is the topic for today, priests. We are, as Suzanne said, into the second week in our study of the book of Leviticus, a book which we often find baffling but which offers a surprising journey of discovery for the modern Christian, particularly, as I said last week, because it reveals how sinful people, just like us, can live in the presence of a holy God. Now, that, that's what Leviticus is all about, how sinful people can live in the presence of a holy God. And the part of the answer that we looked at last week was sacrifices, a system of sacrifice that both atoned for people's sin, it dealt with sin, but it also moved people in a heartfelt way towards their devotion to God. And that was part of the way Israelites could live in the consuming presence of the holiness of God and survive. Uh, this week we're looking at the topic of priests. And if sinful people are to live in the presence of a holy God, they're going to need priests who can somehow represent them to God and who can somehow represent God to them. And so today we're going to look at the job of the priests then we'll see how Jesus is the great priest and we're going to finish with a very surprising discovery about ourselves. 
So firstly for today, the book of Leviticus teaches us that the priests had the most important job in ancient Israel. They really were the go-to guys, uh, by which I meant they represented the people to God and they represented God to the people. And that's essential to the role of the priest, this two-way kind of role, which you don't really see much at all in kind of any jobs in today's culture. So for example, imagine you wanted to buy a house. Now you've got to imagine that these days because it's never going to be a reality, is it? <laughs> imagine you want to buy a house. You go check it out and there you're going to meet a real estate agent. And I've discovered real estate agents are uniformly good-looking people. Have you noticed that? The Manly Daily section, they're incredibly good-looking. If you're ugly, you can't work in real estate. And so you meet the agent and not only are they good-looking, but they're warm and they're helpful and they're friendly and they're interested. And you think, I think this person wants to be friends with me. And you can actually think they're working for you. They aren't working for you. They're working for the seller or the vendor. And, and it, although it might feel like they're kind of really working for both parties, actually they're trying to get the best price for the person selling the house. But priests did have that kind of dual role, uh, duly representing. They represented the people as they approached God with the series of sacrifices that we talked about last week. And if you weren't here, you should listen to it, and which we've just read a little bit about today. And that's a very positive re representation. Uh, here in Leviticus chapter 9, they first present sacrifices on behalf of themselves. And then they present offerings or sacrifices on behalf of the people. <coughs> Pardon me. And in fact, the order in which they do that actually tells us something about how you can approach God. Firstly, they present the sin offering. And then we learn that the presence of human sin must first be dealt with if we're going to approach God. And then it's followed by the burnt offering. Remember from last week, that sort of symbolized wholehearted, all-in devotion to God. And after that comes the fellowship offering or the peace offering, in which people enjoy open relationship with God in His presence. So that order is kind of important. And the priests obviously had an important role in administering that and representing the people to God via those offerings. But you'll see there's also a negative edge to the way that the people uh, represented, uh, the priest represented the people. And you get a hint of that even in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3. Have a look at this, where we find out that if the anointed, that is the high priest, sins, he brings guilt upon the people. He's not only responsible for himself, but his actions affect the people. So he's representative in that sense. Uh, they can, the priests can represent the people positively, but they can also represent them ineffectively, bringing guilt upon them. And further than that, the priest not only represents people up to God, positively or negatively, but they also represent or showcase God to the people as they teach the people, as they instruct the people, as they even bless the people. And you can see Moses and Aaron doing that in verses 22 and verses 23. It was a very important job. It was an important job because it was a holy job, uh, by which I mean they were required to be holy. And if you were to read Leviticus chapter 8, you would see the elaborate ceremony for the ordination of the priests of Israel that included Aaron, that is Moses' brother, 
and his four sons, Eleazar, Ithamar, Nadab, and Abihu. Uh, have a look, chapter 8, verse 6. Moses prepared these guys to be priests by first washing them. And then he put on them the special tunic, the sash, the robe, the ephod. It's kind of a, a chest covering. The waistband, the breastpiece, the special turban, and then the headpiece. I mean, that was spanking. And their washing and their uniform gave them this kind of symbolic and visual holiness. They looked ready. They looked ready to serve the Lord, ready to come into his presence. And then Moses offered sacrifices on behalf of Aaron and his sons. And then they had to stay at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Remember, that's the otherwise known as the tabernacle, kind of this special kind of tent that resembled a symbolic garden of Eden, in, which was constructed in the very middle of the camp of the Israelites and in which God would appear and dwell with his people in their presence in a, in a special way. And look, even speaking of the architecture of the camp, the Levite tribe, that is the tribe of Israel from which the priests came, was positioned closest to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Have a look at this diagram. Closest to the presence of the holiness of God. So that required them to be holy. Uh, the rest of the Levites who weren't priests, they sort of acted as an admin kind of team for the priests, looking after the building, looking after the furniture of the tabernacle. But they also, as you can see in the diagram, acted as kind of a buffer between the presence of God in the middle of the camp and the other tribes of Israel that were arranged around the outside. And so this whole kind of tribe, family of Levi, needed to be holy, being closest to the presence of God. But even more so than just the general Levite family member, the job of the priests was particularly holy because they came into contact with the consuming holiness of God. There are two further chapters, Leviticus chapter 21 and 22, that govern the conduct just of priests. Such is the requirement for these people, these representatives, to be holy in all they did as they represented God to the people and vice versa. So it was a holy job. Priests needed to be holy. It was uh, also a difficult job. Uh, if you were to read through the book of Leviticus, but also the books on either side, Exodus before and Numbers afterwards, we discover that the priests were responsible for the building of the tabernacle. They were, as we learnt last week, intimately involved in the offering of sacrifices to God, either with or on behalf of the people. In chapters 12 to 15, they're going to be required to assess people's skin conditions, to see whether people are ceremonially clean or unclean. They're going to be required to inspect people's houses, to see whether mildew has rendered houses clean or unclean. They will be required to inspect clothing to determine whether the same flesh diseases that have rendered humans and houses unclean have also made the garments unclean. So this is what these guys have got to do. They're building kind of foremen. They are butchers. They're GPs. They're building inspectors. They're fashionistas. And they're religious experts as well. So quite a long and disparate list of duties. Quite a job description. Quite a difficult job being a priest. And uh, it was also a dangerous job. Now, uh, there are lots of dangerous jobs out there, to be frank, aren't there? If you are a, a snake whisperer, 
or if you are a knife thrower's assistant or even a rescue worker, that is just not a real photo, is it? <laughs> if you're any of those things, it's going to be difficult to get insurance, isn't it? But uh, this week I, I learned about the top 10 most dangerous jobs statistically from least to most dangerous. Coming at number 10, construction workers, fair enough. Farm workers, truck drivers, dangerous job. Power workers, I mean they've got to deal with heights and electricity, dangerous. Garbage collectors, uh, who've got to deal with motor accidents and the, the chance of getting caught in hydraulic lifts. There are mining machine operators, roofers, pilots. Coming in at number two, it's fishers. Although apparently there's a much greater chance of falling overboard than getting eaten by this fish. Although that looks dicey. And uh, the most dangerous job is lumberjacks. Ah, oh, there you go. I'm a lumberjack, but it's not okay. So lumberjacks. And you know what I think, actually, looking at this list? Hang on. There they go. Uh, they ought to add priests onto it because it really was a dangerous job. It, it was dangerous because they came into contact with the consuming holiness of God. Uh, and if you encountered the holiness of God when you had not taken suitable precautions, that could land you dead. At the end of the ordination ceremony for Aaron and his four sons, that is the priests of Israel, have a look at what Moses said to those five men. Chapter 8, verse 35. It's on the page in front of you. Chapter 8, verse 35. You fellas, you must stay at the entrance to the tent of meeting day and night for seven days. Do what the Lord requires so you will not die. This is what I've been commanded. But if you were ever in doubt that it was a dangerous occupation, you only need to read the start of Leviticus chapter 10. Remember chapter 9 that Ella read to us was this wonderful celebration where the people came before God and they offered sacrifices to him in the expectation that he would appear before them. It's a magnificent day. And he honoured them and their sacrifices, appearing before them in a cloud of glory and consuming their sacrifices by fire in verse 24. And you could tell it was a great day because the people shouted for joy and they fell down prostrate in devotion before him. But have a look, chapter 10, verse 1. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So in chapter 10, verse 2, the same fire that consumed the sacrifices in a wonderful way, consumed these two priests who had only just been ordained, marring the day of celebration with great tragedy. Now, it is a bit hard to work out what exactly unauthorized fire meant, what they had done wrong. It could be they just hadn't paid attention to the very specific commands about ministering before the Lord. It could be that they were drunk. Chapter 10, verse 9, the priests are instructed not to drink alcohol before going into the tent of meeting. It could be that in their enthusiasm, or more likely their defiance, they actually were trying to conduct some kind of a pagan ritual as you might do to a foreign god. But whatever it was, chapter 10, verse 2, clearly contrary to the command of God, and they were burned up as a consequence. Friends, I need to impress upon your spirits that God is not a mere invention or plaything of human beings. 
It's not a domesticated kitten. And certainly these priests discovered that coming into his holy presence improperly is a very dangerous thing to do. It was a dangerous job. And ultimately these priests were unsuccessful in fulfilling their roles perfectly. Obviously that's the case with Nadab and Abihu who were burned up because of their inadequacy in such a startling way. But more generally, just think, if part of the answer to how sinful people can live in the presence of a holy God is to need holy priests who are going to represent the people to God, then these priests failed because they weren't in themselves actually holy. I mean, they were symbolically holy. They were dressed up. They looked apart. But you would have noticed when Ella read the reading that they first had to offer sacrifices on their own behalf to atone for their own sin, to deal with their own sin. And this tension, the inadequacy of the priests, builds and builds. Remember, we saw in chapter 4 that if the priest sinned, it brought guilt upon the whole community. We know that they looked apart in chapter 8, but we've just seen in chapter 9 they first had to offer sacrifices to deal with their own sin before they could do anything for the people. And that would have to make you wonder. And then we just read in chapter 10 that two of the first five priests didn't even make it through day one of service because of their recklessness. And the tension of their inadequacy it builds. It builds until the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. It builds right through the back half of Leviticus. It builds right through the whole Old Testament, even into the New Testament where we discover the priests in the Gospels seem to love their position of power over the people they represent and frequently, frequently oppose Jesus. And you cannot help but be left wondering, will there ever be a priest who can perfectly represent the people to God and vice versa? Now, you will not be surprised to hear me say that tension is only resolved by the Lord Jesus, who is, of course, a better priest. He is the better priest. Uh, he's the better priest because he doesn't die. Uh, so he can keep representing us to God. He can continually intercede to God on our behalf. I mean, that was one of the problems with all the regular priests. They just kept dying. And it prevented them from continuing in their office. But even more so, our great priest Jesus never sinned. And so the two things that, that kept getting the better of priests in Leviticus, they kept dying and they kept sinning, are overcome in our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 7, verse 26, puts it this way. Such a high priest, Jesus, meets our need, one who is holy blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests. He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Now Jesus is still human like these other priests, so he understands what it's like to be with us. He can empathize with us in every way, but he's the better priest. 
He's the one who does not die, at least not after his resurrection to eternal life. And he's the one who has not sinned. Only he could offer a single, once-for-all sacrifice that truly covered our sins because only he had not sinned himself. And so when he offers himself as a sacrifice, because he is both sacrifice and priest, it truly bore our guilt. It truly covered our sins. Therefore, there is no longer an ongoing need to sacrifice for our sins. Both the Levitical system of sacrifices that we looked at last week, the Levitical priests we're looking at today, pointed forward from themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Both were shadows of a reality to come. Both had inadequacies which were perfected when the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins once for all. So that he perfectly and continually represents us to God. As we saw last week, he is the effective sacrifice. And this week we discover he is the perfect priest. So we no longer come to an altar with a sacrifice and a priest. We come to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a flawless sacrifice and a perfect priest. We don't come to an altar. We celebrate that at the table of the Lord's Supper, which we'll share in in a moment. Now, heads up, we are going to sing a song afterwards which says, Come to the Altar. <laughs> so just not to confuse you, what that song is about is saying, Come to the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is actually how you know that if you trust in Christ, you are acceptable in the presence of a holy God. We can be assured of it, not because of anything that we have done, but because of this truly holy priest who continually represents us before God on the basis of his once-for-all sacrifice of himself on the cross. And can I say humbly that if you don't trust Christ, our great priest, you can have no assurance or confidence that you are acceptable before God. You don't have that confidence. And the example of Nadab and Abihu should have you quaking with uncertainty. I'm not lying when I say that trusting in Jesus makes all the difference. For he is a better priest. Now as we finish today, our New Testaments reveal something quite surprising. You would think that if the system of priests set up in Leviticus, shown to be inadequate throughout the rest of the Old Testament, if it was perfected and fulfilled in Jesus he would be the final word. We don't need to mention priest again because he is the better priest. And yet our New Testaments make the outlandish claim, it's outlandish, that you and I together, not individually, separately, randomly, but you and I together are now priests. Christians are now priests. Frankly, I find this a little bizarre, but it must be true. 1 Peter 2 puts it this way. You also, it's talking to Christians together, you also are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again in verse, uh, uh, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Did you hear that? You and I together are being built into a holy priesthood which offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God? Were you listening? 
we are a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation serving God? It's ridiculous. But it must be true because it says it twice there in 1 Peter chapter 2 and three more times in the book of Revelation. Jesus has made his church, the collection of his people, a holy priesthood to serve God. Now, incidentally, that's why we don't call full-time church workers priests, uh, assuming that they are Christians, they are priests, but actually so is every other Christian. If you're a Christian here today, you're a priest. Um, We call them ministers, which is also pretty dumb because every other Christian is a minister as well. (laughs) So we're not that smart, but I'll tell you what this means. It means that all of us play a role in collectively serving God and representing Him to people. So the question we need to end with is, how are we going to do that? 1 Peter chapter 2 has a, like a twin idea on how we might live out our vocation, our calling as a holy and royal priesthood, serving God and representing Him to the world. In verse 11, it urges us to abstain from sinful desires. In verse 12, to live such good lives amongst unbelievers that they will glorify God. So abstain from sin, the very thing the original priests battled with and live good lives among unbelievers the very thing our great high priest Jesus did with aplomb now Christians I wonder if I don't actually need to say all that much about abstaining from sinful desires in that I suspect most of us are at least partially aware of the sins that beset us the reason we indulge sinful desires whether that's lust or greed or pride or selfish ambition or you know slanderous talk gossip or aggression it's not a lack of education is it it's a lack of motivation don't you think in other words it's not that we don't know what's wrong it's just that we enjoy doing it i think that's right and we remain unshocked at the things that affront god's holiness not just in the culture out there but actually worse in ourselves And so I think what we need to work on is our motivation for abstaining from sinful desires. And the motivation we've heard from today's passage is we actually serve a holy God. And we're permanently acceptable in God's presence by the once-for-all sacrifice offered by His perfect Son, Jesus, when He offered Himself. That means we can serve God in confidence rather than in fear. But He has further made us Uh, strangely in some ways, into a holy priesthood. So it's illogical. It's inappropriate. It just doesn't fit that we would indulge sinful desires. And it's logical and appropriate and it's fitting for us to resist them. And it's even possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. So on that kind of negative side, we want to abstain from sinful desires. And I hope your heart is moved to want to do that. But positively, it says we want to live good lives among unbelievers, ultimately so they will see our lives and praise God rather than praising us. Of course, this assumes that we're carrying on our lives in the presence and the witness of unbelievers. It also assumes that they can see something in our lives of quality. Uh, I wonder if you're not yet a Christian here, if you can see in the, the life of your Christian spouse, friend, whatever it is, a life of quality something distinctively Christian about conduct or speech 
that might lead them to glorify God. See, it, it could be our patience with our children or our grandchildren or our parents that we might be caring for or our employees, those who are, that are working for us. Uh, it could be our language in the workplace. It could be that at times we are prepared to take heat rather than shift blame in the workplace. It might be our behaviour on the sporting pitch. It might be our generosity to our neighbours or the wider manly area. It might just be we don't join in on gossip, but we try to speak positively about other people. It might be that we actually let positivity push aside our otherwise bitter and critical spirit. It might be that people sense that we're just content with less, with less possessions, with less luxury, with less experiences, rather than always kind of clambering or grasping for more. It might be that people sense inclusion when they come to our church or our small groups, or maybe they sense heart-filled and awe-filled joy in our worship together. Well, we do want to work out how to both abstain from sinful desires and live such good lives amongst unbelievers. But there are some suggestions to start with about what it might look like for us to be a royal and holy priesthood, both serving God and declaring his praises to a watching world. Now, friends, these days priests don't have a good name, do they? But in Jesus, there really is a better and a perfect priest, one who does not die and one who has never sinned. He perfectly represents people to God and God to people. And he further engages those of us who have benefited from his priestly service when he sacrificed himself on the cross to serve God as a holy priesthood. It is startling. And it is surprising. And it is both a wonder and a privilege. My question is whether it's something that we're up for. I'm going to pray and ask God to move our hearts so that it is something that we're up for and ask him to actually help us fulfill that vocation. So why don't you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you for Jesus, the great priest, perfectly representing us to you and you to us by his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. And we're surprised that you might call us to be a holy priesthood. We feel inadequate in so many ways. Move our hearts to want to do that, both abstaining from sinful desires and living good lives. And then in the power of your Spirit, help us to do those things, that people might look at our lives and glorify you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.